Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Chris Flannery. Coming up, three guests, three very, very interesting people. First up, David Epstein, a New York Times bestseller, a former staffer at ProPublica and Sports Illustrated. He is the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And Epstein basically examines whether early specialization leads to your best possible results, specifically in sports. That's our conversation. And he finds that that is not the case. You want to be more Roger Federer, perhaps, than Tiger Woods, where you sample many different things in many different sports. But a very, very, very fascinating book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. So he is our first guest, and that is the conversation. After that, we go very big on the NBA Finals. Sirit Sohi is an NBA writer for Yahoo Sports. She is based in Toronto, and we diagnose the series um, in terms of what will happen. But beyond that, in terms of at least for the sports media stuff, Sirit, this is Sirit's sort of first major finals that she'll be covering from beginning to end. And we talk about what it's like. How do you find stories amid a thousand media people being there? How do you separate yourself from the pack? Is there pressure in terms of writing the NBA finals? versus, uh, you know, writing Game 52 against, uh, you know, against the Trailblazers or something like that. So it was a really interesting conversation, and she knows the Raptors cold. So if you're interested in some NBA Finals talk, check her out. Finally, we end with Daniel Dale. Daniel Dale is probably familiar to you as the Toronto Stars Washington Bureau Chief and basically the chief fact-checker of Donald Trump. But there are no politics in this podcast. Daniel Dale is a massive Raptors fan. I mean, he is basically... uh, you know, he's Drake without the, you know, millions and rap success. So we go into his Raptors fandom, why this is like an incredibly exciting time for him, uh, what this riot has been. And again, he is a very renowned political journalist, but his uh, passion is the Toronto Raptors. And we get into that. So David Epstein followed by Sirit Sohi finishing up with Daniel Dale, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. David Epstein is a best-selling author. He is a former staffer with me at Sports Illustrated, and I would say a semi-current staffer at ProPublica. He left to do this book, but he could go back. But the reason he is here, you know, along with being one of my favorite colleagues at Sports Illustrated, is he has a new book out called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And David Epstein joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. David, how are you? you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, you you are a very famous author now, doing (laughs) TED Talks, NPR, so slumming into my little podcast. uh, Oh, please. I I appreciate that. It's very nice of you. All right. So this interview is going to be a little bit different because usually I'm I'm talking kind of geeky sports media or doing straight uh, one-on-ones with you know, sort of well-known media people. This is very specific to your book, which is really, really fascinating to me. So let's give the sort of the readers uh, or the listeners, I should say, a little bit of an overview. Your book questions what we have always been told, let's keep it to sports, always been told in sports, that early specialization leads to your best possible result. Why should that kind of thesis be questioned? So in, in the sports world, The book is mostly non-sports, but like you said, let's focus on sports here. So 
and I think it'll be helpful to answer that question to give a little bit of the genesis of this this idea in the first place, sure. if that's okay. And it yep. was after the sports gene, I got invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, uh, you know, that, that Daryl Morey co-founded, um, to debate Malcolm Gladwell. So this is like up on YouTube, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. And, and this is the first time we ever met. Uh, and of course, you know, I knew he's very clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed. Um, so... I tried to anticipate what he might argue, even though we also have some common ground, but whatever. Um, and I figured based on his thesis, he would have to argue that a head start in so-called deliberate practice or like very technical training in whatever uh, sport you play, that early specialization would be an insurmountable advantage because that's kind of a corollary of the way he wrote about the 10,000 hour rule. And so in anticipation, I went and looked at all uh, the research I could find. I mean, the first, both my books, the first process, the first year I don't write, I, I try to read 10 journal articles a day, every day. I don't make it every day, but I make it most days. And so I had a huge store of papers uh, studying the developmental trajectories of athletes. And it turned out that in almost all sports, athletes who go on to become elite start with what sports scientists call a sampling period, where they play a bunch of different sports. They gain a variety of general physical proficiencies. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities, and they systematically delay specializing. Uh, they also play, play in an unstructured way a lot. They delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. So when we came to the debate, I sort of said – I framed this as the Roger versus Tiger problem, right? Tiger Woods development is the story we all know. Uh, specialized extremely early on national television at two, demonstrating his swing. Whereas Roger Federer's story, he played like every sport under the sun. His mother was a tennis coach but refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. Um, even once he wanted to – once his coaches wanted to kick him up a higher level, he refused because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. And he, he kept playing badminton, basketball, and soccer long after thousands of his peers were already working with like nutritionists and sports psychologists and obviously he turned out okay. So my question was, which developmental path is the typical one to the top, the Roger path or the Tiger path? And it turned out in most sports, it was definitively the Roger path. And so that's where this, this idea sort of came from and where the book starts. So again, I, the, the book is fascinating. And I think you, yeah, at least to me, you sort of, you, you, you have sold me on the thesis and I have little kids. So I will perhaps uh, try to take what I have read from your book and do the best I can to give them a sampling. But you, you mentioned Federer as sort of a generalist. And in the book, we find that generalists often find their path late and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. But I thought to myself, David, like, doesn't the generalist, though, eventually focus on a specialty? Doesn't the generalist eventually become a become a specialist? So in a, in a way where we are all specialists in the end, or am I reading into that a little too much? No, no, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there were a couple semantic issues that, that I had to try to grapple with in this book, right? So I think like this issue of being broad versus being narrow is one that I think is incredibly important to a lot of people or that most of us at some point or another think about, but that all of the public conversations are pretty much just based on intuition, even though there's a ton of relevant research. And so what I wanted to do was just bring that research to bear on this conversation so people can think about it in a more concrete way. But that also involves things like, what does it mean to be broad versus narrow? Like there's not like a bright line between those things. And of course, like you suggested, um, just like Roger, to one degree or another, we all specialize to some degree or another, right? Like I wouldn't say 
you're as specialized, you know, covering sports media, you're more specialized than a general assignment reporter, but you're not as specialized as like somebody who's spending their whole life studying one organism or something like that. Hmm. So I, I think as, as the book progresses, I, it, more toward the end, I, I try to highlight, um, as it goes on, people like scientists who from the outside and doctors who are considered highly specialized, you know, in terms of this general scope of humanity, but even looking in there and saying, well, how can they, even as they specialize, continue to um, gain these benefits of breadth, even while the incentives sort of align to make them think they should be more and more and more specialized. So there is that issue for sure. And I say this several times in the book, we all specialize to one degree or another at some point or another. So it's, it's a question of how to find what do you have to do to make your odds high of specializing in something that really fits you and, and on that path. And once you're specialized, how do you still maintain the advantages of, of breadth? Let me ask you a question that's very, very broad, so I realize you could go hours on this, but um, take it where you want. In your view, after doing this research, how does specialization impact societies? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a really big – well, for one, I, I think there's two ways. So it is, first of all, inevitable and advantageous. Let, let me give an can – I, can I give an, a specific example maybe in, in medicine? Yep. Okay. So it's inevitable and advantageous because we – uh, we need it. You know, we want to divide up labor, obviously. Um, and there's such an explosion in the library of human knowledge that we need some people who are drilling really deeply down, like medical specialists, right? The problem has been as medical specialization was viewed as just a, you know, an un unremitted, unmitigated good only. And so we pushed more and more and more specialization. And what's happened now is we've gotten to a point where all the cutting edge of the medical industry is working with what's called surrogate markers. So instead of looking at the whole organism that is a human being, right? Like a cardiologist used to be considered a specialized doctor. Now a cardiologist is only specialized if, for example, they only work with cardiac valves, like the little floppy door that lets blood in and out of your heart. That's it. Mm. And when we get that specialized, what happens is those people will treat the cardiac valve. And they have, and that's what's called a surrogate marker. What you really care about is somebody having a heart attack or stroke or dying, not not what the cardiac valve is doing. And there's an assumption that these treatments of these these smaller pieces of the puzzle will lead to uh, good outcomes for the things you actually care about. But more and more, when we zoom out and look at the outcomes we actually care about, that turns out not to be the case. So we're medicating people to bring their blood pressure down, for example, and then someone zooms out. And looks at the more general picture, and it turns out that people are dying of heart attack and stroke at the same rate, just with lower blood pressure numbers. So you have this incredible proliferation, excuse me, of people who are looking at a tiny, tiny piece of a complex system and assuming that they can intuit cause and effect. And I think the evidence is now that they cannot. And so that as that specialization proceeds and, and proliferates, we need these generalists, these people with a larger view working with the specialist to help them connect their knowledge or what Freeman Dyson, this eminent um, physicist and mathematician said, we need, he said, to have a healthy ecosystem, we need both birds and frogs. The frogs are down in the mud looking at just a few details, but we really need the birds who are up above seeing what different frogs are doing and helping them connect because they can't see the big picture. And his concern was that we're only incentivizing the frogs when the birds are indispensable and we can't have a healthy ecosystem without both. And so I think that serves as a good analogy for uh, a lot of the different domains that I get into in range. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, I remember reading there was a scientist in your book who told you that specialization has created a system of, I wrote this down, parallel trenches and everyone is just that. digging 
yeah, digging deeper in their trench. It um, it got me thinking. Can, can I just I, say, I, oh, oh, sorry, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. You no, just no, reminded please, me of something. Okay, I, I love that you picked up on that because I loved that system of parallel trenches as an idea where he said, and he's one of the most prominent scientists in the world, by the way. And right. he says, the problem is we're all in our own trench and we never stand up to look in the next trench, you know, even though our answer is often there. And that actually reminded me of a lot of stuff in sports science because, you know, after the sports gene, I was going to sports science conferences and say there's a conference on recovery, you know, athlete recovery. And you're seeing there's one uh, talk that's looking at blood biomarkers and another one that's looking at um, just hormone levels and another that's looking at skin temperature and all this stuff, all these, these surrogate markers of what you really care about, which is how recovered the person is overall. And then I go back and read the research and it's like none of that stuff is remotely as good a predictor of recovery as someone writing down in a journal how they're feeling after training. And so it's like because it's sexy to do all these biomarkers and and genetics and all these other things that I'm interested in, we totally lose the broad view of the whole organism. And I think that's been like a real uh, miss in some of the areas uh, that, that athletes really care about. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just like that you seized on that. And I think it's relevant to sports. No, no, not at all. Um, one of the things in the book, you there's a great phrase that you use, uh, slow bakers, which basically are people who find their success late. Um, do you feel, can a, can someone who was reared as a specialist ultimately become a generalist? I, I do think so. And that slow bakers term, I should say, I, I didn't coin that. Um, that was told to me by a woman named Chelsea War, who helped um, first Australia and then the UK basically turn around their national sporting programs in, in preparation for their home Olympics and had a huge impact. And one of the main tenets of her strategy was she said, okay, you know, we're all focused on the fast risers. She says they're fast risers and slow bakers. And we're all focused on the fast risers. Like who are the kids that are, when they're really young, they look like they're going to be really good, which, which by the way, that usually means you're just picking them based on biological maturation when you match too young, not because they're actually good. You're just seeing the kids who are maturing faster. And so what she said is we need to diversify our pipeline to make room for the slow bakers because we know the, the people who develop more slowly because we know those people tend to become some of the best athletes. And so one of the things she implemented seemed crazy, which was these so-called or helped implement these so-called talent transfer programs where you take someone who has maybe had a sampling period or maybe didn't, but they've, for whatever the case, they've focused in on a certain sport for a number of years, but they're probably not going to make the national team or they're not going to be a medalist or whatever the case. And so before they kick them out of the developmental pipeline, they say, go, go try some other things first. And both countries got not got Olympic champions out of people who had not participated in their sport at the previous Olympics from those programs of just taking people who had done something else and saying, now we're going to let you do some sampling and let's see if we can find a place where you fit. Um, and I, I would argue that arguably the most dominant athlete in the world today is a woman named Helen Glover, a rower who had not rowed as of 2008 and at 2012 won a gold medal in London and I think has been undefeated since then. Um, and so I think that shows that these people who were specialized, it can be opened up again and they can try things again. And it looks exactly like the data from other areas where, you know, in the book I talk about match quality and that's, that's what we're talking about. This, the term economists use for the degree of fit between an individual's interests and their abilities and the, and the work they do. 
And it's the same thing in like college systems in different countries, the countries that have earlier specialization, like starting in high school, um, people jump out to an income lead, but they get caught by people who get to sample and therefore pick a better match. And then they start quitting what they're doing in, in much higher numbers. And, and basically it's just like with sports. If they're made to pick too early, you're more likely to put more people in the wrong slot. If, um, again, asking you, this is a big, big question, but, uh, I think people who are listening will just sort of be curious at your ideas. If I'm the parent of a young kid or young kids, what what is my best course of action? Not necessarily to develop to develop another Tiger Woods or Roger Federer, which is, you know, a once in a generation kind of thing, but for them to ultimately find what what they enjoy, what suits them. I mean, reading your book, what seems very clear to me is the best avenue for this is to sample as many things as possible and almost let them make the decision as to what the specialization would be for them. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I'm going to, you know, you have, you have kids, I have an even younger kid. I'm going to try to expose him, um, to a lot of different things. So he'll, he'll gain sort of general physical proficiency, which is may, way more important, right? There's a saying among a lot of sports scientists, um, let them be an athlete first, like learn how to use their body. The specific skills, the technical skills are so-called closed skills that they can just learn later if they develop their athleticism. So I'll try to expose him to a whole bunch of different stuff. And then I'll try to delay force specialization as long as I possibly can, right? Like one of the problems is that whether even if specialization isn't the best way to go, a lot of forces are trying to, to, to make it mandatory, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of adults who have a financial, for, for whom these these kids are not just athletes. They are customers that you don't want in other sports, right? Because they're your customers. So like when I was living in Brooklyn, there was a, a U6 travel soccer team that met like in a park across from me as if there's not good enough competition in a city of 9 million people for five-year-olds that they have to travel, right? That has nothing to do with their athletic development. It has everything to do with like someone convinced their parents that they should pay them to, to be on a travel team. Um, so, so I'll, I'll try to expose to a ton of different stuff in unstructured and lightly structured manner. Um, and, uh, then I'll try to delay specialization as long as possible because the early, the earlier you force someone to specialize, the more likely you put them in the wrong spot, and the more likely you select them for the wrong things. As a, as an observer, how did you view Kyler Murray, who was, um, you know, obviously went number one in the NFL draft, but was also a clearly an exceptional athlete when it came to baseball. I don't know his background in terms of specialization, but that's pretty. That's a very interesting person to me in terms of having that kind of proficiency in those two sports where you're able to make a decision as he did uh, at the, you know, at the, at the highest possible level. Um, is he just somebody, at least for your mind, who's almost a unicorn that that somebody just that great in multiple sports or is there something more to it? I mean, I, I don't think he's a unicorn because, well, in a sense, because it's rare to be quite that good. But the number of people who get drafted into two sports is like shockingly high. Like if you were drafted into one professional sport, your chances of also having been drafted into another professional sport are way higher than just someone from the general population's chances of being drafted into one sport. I mean, but we often don't think about this stuff, right? Like nobody talks about how Tom Brady was drafted into baseball before he was drafted into football. I don't even know if most sports fans know that. And he's like the most famous football player in the world. I don't think they um, do. Yeah. So, you know, and then there are guys like Danny Ainge, right? He had like a baseball career first. 
Um, and, and I just don't think people even know that. I, I don't know if it's because the story doesn't fit with our rubric or we just ignore it. Um, but he, you know, he, he may be a bit of a unicorn in terms of how actually good he is. And I think we should take away from guys like him the fact that, well, he could have been spending that time, you know, he could have picked one sport and been spending so much more time in that one sport than another. Um, but obviously it didn't hurt him, did it? But those stories, we just like don't, you know, we rare, so rarely reflect on them. I mean, guys like, you know, I remember when Lorenzo Cain was, you know, probably the best player on the team that won uh, the World Series. Nobody talks about the fact he did not play a game of baseball to 16 years old. That one even surprises me, I got to be honest. I wow. would have thought he would have That's some exposure, but not specialization. And now he's probably, what, the most, maybe the most well-rounded player, you know, other than Mike Trout um, in baseball. I mean, so he's specifically known for how good he is at, at many different things. So I, I think we're just, it, it's, it's, for some reason, those stories, they just don't fit an easy template and, and they don't catch on. And so I think we really don't know how many uh, athletes have been, um, you know, like I, I remember when I was finishing my introduction, you know, the Super Bowl was Tom Brady and Nick Foles and Brady was drafted into baseball before football. Foles was choosing in college. He had, had done a whole bunch of stuff, including karate. And in college, he had to choose between basketball and football. So it's really common, but it doesn't get nearly um, – you know, I think as 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 Gladwell said in one of our debates, like the the videos like Tiger Woods when he's at two years old golfing on TV and like kitty highlight reels are like human cat videos, right? Like we're obsessed with precocity uh, and that stuff's sort of easy to fit a story around, but it's not the norm. Hmm. The uh, the Lorenzo Cain thing is fascinating to me because if he picked up baseball at 16, the ability to sort of see the patterns that a baseball player has to figure out in terms of, uh, you know, pitchers and just how to process a 90 or 100 mile an hour fastball uh, it really gives you some incredible uh, perspective on just how great an athlete uh, or, or thinker or whatever Lorenzo Cain is. Um, I, I did I not, to- uh, I didn't know that. I totally agree. That's why that one surprises me a little bit because it doesn't surprise me at all that he didn't specialize early, but it surprised me that he wasn't exposed <laughs> earlier. The one thing I'll say, I don't know much about the rest of his athletic development, but there is data that suggests people who play multiple different attacking sports, meaning like not golf, not, you know, a sport where people are moving at the same time and you have to do what you just said, anticipate like body movements and ball movements are sort of like people who grew up bilingual and that, you know, they can learn a, a third language more quickly without being told the rules. Um, it seems that if they you played these multiple attacking sports, you more quickly pick up any new attacking sport um, hmm. going forward. So I don't know what his athletic development before baseball was, um, but I'd, I'd be curious if he played other attacking sports because if so, that would fit into this idea that maybe he was, you know, he did have some groundwork to pick up skills more quickly. You wrote in this book that this book was the greatest organizational challenge you ever faced. And if you read the book, you'll see, um, you know, each chapter sort of is its own kind of fascinating, unique story. How did you go about doing this when you sort of set a blueprint to write this book? What what was the blueprint and did you end up following it? Uh I did not, for the most part, end up following it. <laughs> Neither of my books um, bear much resemblance to the proposal. Um, this <laughs> one a little more than the last one, which didn't bear any resemblance to the proposal. Um, but I started it. The proposal was titled Roger versus Tiger, which is the title of the intro of the book. And what I thought I was going to do is go through these different domains using Roger and Tiger as an analogy and say, well, which one is it better to be sort of develop like a Roger and which ones is it better to develop like a tiger. But as I was going through so many of them, not all, but, but so many that I was interested in 
um, leaned the Roger way uh, that I ended up sort of changing that instead of making the whole thing the Roger versus Tiger made it much more on you know breadth and range and 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 just analogizing to the Roger story more generally and and I mean then the organization like I said my first year I try to do ten journal articles a day every day don't make it every day but I make it a lot of days um, and. I mean, I don't know how, how in the weeds you want to get, but I start a thing that I call like a master thought list where I start putting down ideas and sources and quotes. And as they coalesce around, um, sort of themes, I move them close to one another. And then when there's a bunch of them, I, I write a tag over it, which is like a topic tag. And I put a bunch of words that I would word search if I want to find it. And then as different tags start becoming similar, I move those toward each other. And so eventually I sort of have like a storyboard basically. So it's almost like a movie storyboard, but, but the master thought list ends up being, you know, I think this time like 60,000 some words long. So it gets a little unwieldy. It's almost as long as a book. Hmm. You, um, you know, you have, you have a background in sports given you work for sports illustrated, you were a runner in college. Uh, you also obviously have worked for ProPublica and other places where you've done science writing and, um, you know, sort of news analysis writing, when it comes to some of these concepts, David, um, in, when, in sports and dealing, I know you deal with a lot of scientists, but when you have, um, when you have gone out and, and talked to athletes or coaches or people in the sports world, as a general rule, are they open to new ideas or are they open to, uh, maybe retooling some of the, some of the things that we think are are always truisms or is it still very much a um i don't know sort of following whatever patterns existed before i i i, I it's a it's i really didn't ask a great question there but i'm always interested in those people you know the the people who sort of have um approached organizations and sports sort of differently or outside the box they're fascinating to me it, it doesn't always they're not always successful but I think in sports, because conservatism is so great in so many of these sports, that it's really interesting to me when people um, try to challenge pre-existing thoughts. And I wonder just your thoughts just on um, on sports and pre-existing thoughts and how open sports is to, to new ideas. Yeah, so I think obviously there's like a – you know, like a hidebound tendency in a lot of sports, they have long traditions and, and people can be risk averse because there's a lot on the line. At the same time, I've been quite impressed with coaches and sports scientists. In fact, a lot of them, and, and I should say I have some confirmation bias because like when I get invited to conferences, it's probably because they want to hear outside thoughts. Um, so, so that's who I'm getting exposed to. But um, you know, from conferences like Sloan to when I've gone to like the Australian Institute of like MIT Sloan sports analytics conference to, um, the sports institutes I've been to all over the world. I've tended to find that people who are interested in performance are interested in performance. And it doesn't matter if it's a pilot or a, a chef or a doctor or a writer or an athlete. And they want to see what can I take from this other domain and apply it to mine. And, and obviously sports, have a lot of money and a long history. And so there's a lot of momentum, but I do think there's, there's a serious desire to be, th that's really growing right now to be grabbing information from other domains. So I've gotten invited to a lot of these conferences, they're sports conferences, but there's always like, you know, a ballet, I, I, one that I went to not long ago had a ballet dancer, the chief hostage negotiator for the NYPD, um, the chief knowledge officer at, at NASA, who's the guy who makes sure that when they make mistakes, like that there's institutional learning from it. Um, and so there were people being brought in from all these different disciplines. And I think that testifies to a, you know, a desire to have fresh ideas, e even if the momentum of, 
of turning things can can be difficult, but I think there's definitely a desire. The last thing I want to ask you about, it's away from your book, but this is some this is a athlete that you have written about. It feels like I mean, minimum at least that I know when we worked together since 2012 and probably even before that maybe uh maybe before that in the you know, before 2012, before the London Games, and that's Castor Semenya. Mm-hmm. Um what what are your reflections of uh the latest news in um, involving involving her, involving challenging the CAS ruling. Um, you know we're in a we're in a never bore never before seen place when it comes to um, when it comes to this athlete. Yeah, and and after this, if we have time, I want to ask you a question. But if not, that's fine too. But sure. so Castor, I, I have been writing about her since 2009 when she sort of appeared on the world scene by by running away from the world in the 800. Um, and and I I. You know, I actually care about the women's 800. I was an 800 meter runner, so I've been avidly interested in this. I think this is an issue where people can even agree on underlying science and still totally disagree on what to do. Because for most of us, our chromosomes and our genes and our psychology and our genitalia, et cetera, everything and our hormones line up in one area that is male typical or female typical. But for some people, that simply is not the case. And so you have sports in the position of trying to draw a line um, to divide things that are not discrete in that way. And so the line necessarily has to be arbitrary. Science is not going to get you out of that. It has to be arbitrary. So it's a little bit like that famous, the trolley problem in philosophy, you know, where you have to decide to push one guy off a bridge that would block the train and save like three other people, or, you you know, you don't intervene and and you let the three people get hit. It's like, who, who do you want to feel treated unfairly in this case? Um, and in this particular case, I think the, I thought the ruling was going to go the other way. And the reason I thought that was because the IAAF's evidence about, um, performance advantage in different sports, it wasn't very good evidence. There's a ton of evidence that testosterone makes a difference, right? Like I don't think anybody is trying to challenge the rules at the moment for transgender athletes where we have interesting science where you can see someone who's born male and as they suppress testosterone and transition to female, you can track their the performance deterioration. And I don't think anybody's arguing with that. The question is for people with differences of sex development, what do you do? And the IAAF's evidence found performance advantages you know, in the events that Castro Semenya runs, but also the hammer throw and the pole vault, if I recall, and they didn't regulate the hammer throw and the pole vault. So I thought the court of arbitration for sport was going to say, you're clearly targeting this one athlete. So we're going to throw it out. And the evidence was, it just wasn't very good, uh, study. So I I didn't think from the standpoint of like requiring good science to make a regulation, I I don't think it was a win in that regard. And I also think whatever you think about Castro Semenya, I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that she has displayed like every trait that we would want from a champion, no matter what you think, yeah. and, and under Absolutely. intense scrutiny. The, the, probably the most scrutiny any athlete, certainly maybe any yeah. athlete in her her race has ever faced. Um, all right, sure. before we go, is there? I, I mean, I usually don't allow this, but what question possibly could you have for me? You are so you're smarter than me. You're younger than me. You're more successful than me. I have no idea what I could help you with. I, but I, I don't know try. if that's all true, but. Um, I'm just curious about, you know, when, when I first knew you, you were writing about multiple topics and now, and you really carved out, um, you know, a real productive niche for yourself covering sports media. And I'm sort of curious what, when, when, why, and how you, um, homed in on that specifically, since I think you had some sampling period before you found what's like a pretty unique, uh, um, 
you know, beat for yourself that you then really exploited in a, in a good way. This, I don't mean exploited in a bad way. There's in the, in this business literature, you have exploration, which is searching for things to do and exploitation, which is when you home in on it and, and, and blow it up like, like you did. So I'm curious how that well, came about. Yeah, that will be in my next book. Lack of range. Why a, a generalist has not triumphed in a specialized world by Richard Dyche. Um, well, you know, I get it's, that's an interesting question. And I don't, I don't know for me uh, if it was so much sampling or even sort of the the phrase slow baker as a much as a um, as much happenstance as anything. I I always enjoyed media like mm-hmm. as a young as a young kid. I, I found it as fascinating um, how games were broadcast, who the announcers were, how these stories appeared in the paper. That was as fascinating to me as the games themselves it was a different kind of high but the interest was there and so i didn't i certainly didn't get hired or not get hired i certainly didn't go to sports illustrated thinking that i was going to be like a media reporter or writer i went to sports illustrated like you said just because it was my dream magazine and dream job as a kid and i wanted to write there and i didn't you know if anything my goal was to sort of be on the olympics team and the tennis team but Mm -hmm. um in terms of how i ended up sort of as a more specialist, I I honestly think, David, it's more happenstance than anything else. I had an interest in media. I started writing about it tangentially for the magazine uh, when the magazine was obviously the big deal at Sports Illustrated. The person above me left the magazine, so then I took over what was, quote-unquote, the media column. I then went to another job that had nothing to do with media, but that was web-based, I started writing essentially like a monthly media column. The num the the metrics for that media column were I think much better than the bosses ever imagined and I just ended up sort of writing more and more and more and more until it became a a full-time thing. So I don't know if if that fits into sort of any kind of and I'm not saying I don't enjoy it. I certainly do, but um I don't know if I made some kind of conscious decision like, you know, I've written about tennis, I've written about basketball, I've written about women's basketball, I've written about the Olympics, but my my true my true home is sports media. For me, it sort of I feel like I've more fell into it, but I but I fell into something that turned out to be a pretty good thing to fall into because not a lot of people were doing it. So, if if I had any advantage, I think it's just the fact that I went into something which wasn't um how do I phrase this? Uh, which which maybe had um, where the, where either the competition or the supply of people doing it was not nearly as high as if you were an NFL or NBA writer. I don't I don't know if I explained myself great, but that so I I feel like I fell into something that just turned out to be a pretty good place to fall into because there were not a lot of people doing it at a national level. And and you're interested. I mean, I, I write my. I came into SI as a temp fact checker and it turned out that like having gone to grad school in geology is what allowed me to like leapfrog all the people that were waiting totally. 20th in yep. line to be the next NFL writer. But I think what you described fits perfectly with the, that Harvard research I discussed in range called the Dark Horse Project where the people who tend to find productive and fulfilling niches adjust to short-term opportunities. They say, here's where I am right now. Here are the opportunities in front of me. Here are my interests right yeah. now. I'll try this right. and then maybe a year from now I'll change. And so it's called the Dark Horse Project because they all view themselves – 
having gotten there by happenstance. And in the study, they all, well, not all, but like 90% of them say, oh, don't use me as a model because I'm really an oddball. But in fact, that's like the norm for people who find, find their niches that way. If you have like an ironclad long-term plan, you know, that's like what computer scientists refer to as premature optimization. Like you're, you're picking the plan before you've had a chance to like see where the niches even are. That's interesting. And the one thing I will say is there's no doubt that because I, um, because I did media, that got me a uh, recurring uh, guest uh, spot on a show in Toronto at Sportsnet 590, where they brought me on to discuss the media issues in America. That relationship, fast forward six, seven years, turned out to, for me to have a full-time job here, and I am talking to you now from Toronto. So that's interesting in that um, the 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 path for me, whether chosen or not, ended up leading to a whole other different avenue that I would not have had as a specialist if I just was at Sports Illustrated as I'm making this up, you know, their fourth NBA person. Yeah. I would not be in Toronto today. I'd, I'd still be in New York or somewhere else. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's I interesting. Mean, yeah, I, I was going to say the um, I, I've always admired the people um, uh, who are generalists, you know, people like our colleagues, Tim Layden. Scott Price, you know, people who we've worked with in writing, because I think it's an incredible skill to parachute into a into a place and 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 come up with an amazing story. I know there are people who would say, ah, they parachute and they don't really get it. And of course, sometimes you don't get it. But that's a real amazing skill to me to be that facile, to be able to cover anything at a uh, at a moment's uh, at a moment's notice. All right. Let us give David Epstein's resume again. He is a best selling author. The sports gene. A former sta- – well, I t- again, I keep saying former. He, he is maybe – I'm going to say you're on leave from ProPublica. Are you okay with that? Um, yeah, I mean you can say I'm, I'm former, although I'm still probably going to write something for them. Yeah, wh- whichever you prefer. Uh, it's very frustrating wh- whatever's going on with you in ProPublica. But again, <laughs> you're a former staff writer for Sports Illustrated, and the reason you are here is you have a new book, Range, While, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I have no doubt this is going to be a big hit, uh, and you are going to uh, – be uh, talking about this book for some time. It's really, really, if a knucklehead like me can find this fascinating, it's going to be many people <laughs> out there. Check that out on Amazon. Uh, follow David Epstein on Twitter if you want the latest updates on where he'll be. Again, range why, why generalist triumph in a specialized world. Epstein, it's great to catch up with you. You know I wish nothing but the best of success for you, and, uh, and your book is terrific. Congratulations and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks very much and uh, pleasure and and I'll keep following uh, following your work and being a fan from afar. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Sirit Sohi has been on this podcast before, so this is number two, I believe, for her. She is an NBA writer for Yahoo Sports. She is based in Toronto, and she is covering the NBA Finals. This, um... She did cover a couple of games in last year's finals, but this is essentially, I mean, this is a big finals for her and essentially sort of the, 
her first uh, big-time NBA Finals, given that she is a Torontonian. And so I wanted to bring her on because I think it's just interesting. Like, how do you approach the NBA Finals when you haven't covered, like, 20 of them? And, and how do you try to find stories amid a 1,000 press people covering the same thing? And Sirit, so he joins us on the sports media podcast. Sirit, we're in the same city. We're not in the same studio, so I... I would wave to you, but I don't know exactly where you are. But welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I, I'm kind of I'm really interested in how how you are going to approach the the NBA Finals. Um, there are so many media people who are going to be in Toronto and Oakland. There's so many story angles being covered. How do you how do you approach it? How do you approach it in your position? Well, I think a couple of different things. Uh, as somebody who hasn't done this before in an extended way, one of the things I've just learned from covering the, the Raptors up until this point is on some level you kind of have to give up on the idea that you're going to be able to come up with something new, especially now. There's so many people. We know these guys as much as they're going to let us know, let us know them uh, up to this point. So you kind of have to give up on the idea that you're going to be able to to get that one unique kernel. Obviously, you look for it, but I've, I'm trying not to agonize over that part. Maybe not as successfully as uh, as I would hope for my own mental health. But uh, you know, it's, I, th- I think it's something that you uh, you kind of just have to to tell yourself and. Uh, and, but at the end of the day, it's like your your logical brain is obviously going to be different than, uh, than how you actually feel about things. And then the other thing is just kind of like, you know, just when you're watching a game, I think that no matter who you are, you're always going to have somewhat of a unique experience with it. Like we all see things through our own lens and then uh, just kind of go from there. And if you have enough confidence in the fact that your idea is a little bit different from, from everybody else's, it's not going to be that different. But if you can put your own spin on it and, and trust your own voice, then I think, uh, I think that's kind of half the battle. One of the advantages I have with the series being in Toronto is that like, I kind of do know the guys a little bit better. And I, you know, let's say something plays out in the game. I might know, you know, one guy might be the certain guy to talk to about, let's say like, Kyle Lowry goes off. Like I might know, like which guy to talk to about that. Aside, aside from aside from Kyle, so there's there's definitely advantages in, in the finals being in the city that uh, that you live in in that sense. But you know it's going to be touch and go, and we'll uh, we'll see. I guess for your uh, specific role at Yahoo Sports, what um, what kind of assignments will you have? Are you expected to write every day? Are you expected to write after games? What what roughly would be your blueprint during this series? I'll definitely be writing after every game. And then from there, there's a, there's a couple of features that I'll be working on. Uh, one of them I'm, I'm pretty excited for, uh, which, it, which is, uh, is one of those more unique things that, that goes back to what I was saying about, uh, about being able to see the game through your, your own lens and then just trying to just trying to take that as far as you can. And uh, that'll be, Probably, probably around like game two or something. I'll I'll, uh, I'll fire off on that one, and uh, from there it's kind of you gotta just see how these things play out because 
the thing with the playoffs is that I think the storylines can shift so much from game to game that you can't really dig in and do something uh, substantive unless, like, you know, there's it's about something that won't really uh, won't really be impacted by the games. But I think you know, culture and free agency are two two big aspects of this series in particular that I think I'm always going to be paying attention to. Just with you know, Kevin Durant's free agent, Kawhi's free agent. I think that they've both approached free agency in uh, in completely different ways this year. Uh, obviously, KD has a little bit more of a spotlight on him, no matter what. So there's an inevitability in the amount of attention and drama that uh, that he will attract. But I think uh, I think Kawhi is an example of you can you can control a good deal of uh, of the spotlight around you if. Uh, I guess if you're not really that interested in it, if the way that the, the way that Kawhi is and the fact that the Raptors have, have made it this far kind of kind of probably is impacted by that in in some ways. And you know, these are two big culture squads as well. So like, no matter what, like there's certain threads that are always going to be the case. And you know, the guys are superstars, and that will be what people are interested in, regardless of whether KD plays or not. Because that's just kind of the league that we that we cover at this point. So. You know, it's kind of just balancing the game stories with uh, with those types of things. Sir, do you feel any more pressure, given that it's the NBA Finals, given that it's the first time in twenty something years that you know your city has the Finals? I I'm always interested if writers um, if they feel more pressure when the when the event itself is bigger, or maybe just when they they inevitably know more people are going to be reading their work. Uh, I, I do, but it's also, I also just don't really know what to compare it to because this is my first year covering the NBA full time. So like in, in, uh, in a non-freelance capacity. So I feel pressure in that way as well. Like I just kind of want to, I want to make sure that I do a good job of it, of course. And then, yeah, like it's kind of just like strike while the iron tall. Like there's, there's a good deal of opportunity to to do a lot of good work because the finals are in Toronto and because there are going to be eyes on it. And uh, it's the team that, that I've been following for a while. So yeah, there's definitely pressure. I just, I just don't really know how to differentiate uh, why it's happening, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's an honest answer. Uh, who have you found to be the most interesting quote on the Raptors or maybe there's multiple people and why? Uh, the Raptors have a lot of interesting quotes. The most interesting to me is probably Fred Van Vliet because I think that he is a just like incredibly smart and he has a really good pulse on, on the team. Like he's a, he's, he's a point guard and he kind of you know, tries to be cognizant of what everybody is thinking and, and going through and he'll kind of you know, he'll, he'll, he'll tell you some of the truth as well. I mean, if you ask him about an issue with the team, he's usually pretty candid about it. Um, you know, Kevin Arnovitz uh, wrote a great piece about Kyle Lowry a couple, a couple weeks ago, and I can't remember the exact quote, but Fred had one of the best quotes in it, and I'll paraphrase it to try to get the spirit of the quote, but it was essentially, you know, he's, he's a pain in the ass, but... And he, oh, I think he called him batshit crazy. I think, but you gotta love him. And I think like that's that's kind of one of the things. Where, like I, I don't think Fred like sidesteps things very often. He's pretty candid, and uh, he's just a he's 
he's a good guy to talk to. He'll talk about his own slump. He's done. He did that throughout uh, the playoffs as well. You know, he kind of admitted, like, yeah, I know I haven't been shooting that well up until the point that he had a that he had his uh, his, uh, his partner had their second child, uh, Fred Jr., which makes him, I believe, either Fred Senior or Fred the Third, which is a pretty a pretty cool thing to tack onto a name that is already Fred Van Vliet, by the way. <laughs> so you know, it's uh, he he's he's definitely he's definitely a good guy to talk to. From your vantage point as Canadian, as somebody who covers the league. And as someone obviously who's read a lot about the Raptors, um, how do you perceive the coverage of this team in the States? And have you seen any kind of shift in that coverage over the last couple weeks where the very traditional narrative about the Raptors, um, you know, crumbling in the playoffs and not being able to get past a certain point essentially is now done given that they're in their first NBA finals and, and 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 in a way, in in terms of how they did it, they didn't just win, but they won. They won very tense, hard uh, games against really good opponents in the Sixers in Milwaukee. Yeah, and they did it making comebacks too. So I think that slowly that narrative has kind of shifted. I don't know what we're going to write about anymore because it was always a great clutch when they lost. <laughs> I <laughs> right. guess that's up to that's up to us to figure out. But uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's interesting to to see the increase in coverage because at the end of the day, when you dig in the well with this team, it's interesting, but there's not a lot of conflict. You know, you, you're not going to dig into to Kawhi Leonard and, and I think find more than he's already volunteered. And I think that applies to this team largely. I just don't think that they – Crave celebrity quite that much, so I don't know if the storylines will change too much. Uh, but at the same time, I think any time that there are really great reporters put in a place, like you're just kind of going to come out with uh, with new stuff. So I'm actually I'm really excited to see to see where the coverage goes in the series, what what stories come out of them having the level of spotlight that a team like the Warriors has had on them for for three or four years now where we kind of know every single thing about them in terms of, you know, the interpersonal dynamics, their flaws, their, their, uh, their shortcomings and, and the way that they kind of have managed to, to work through that stuff and, you know, who has a good relationship with who and, you know, when it, when is a when is a coach and, and a player kind of having a conflict and stuff like there's a lot of that stuff doesn't really, really come out too much in Toronto. So, be interesting to see if uh, if that happens, and then beyond that, like the Kawhi free agency angle will be will be interesting as well. So those are those are kind of the, the two main things. I as far as overall coverage goes, I generally tend to push back against the idea that the Raptors don't get enough of it because <laughs> uh, I mean I think they do. I think uh, I think they're incredibly well covered in uh, in Canada in particular, just like the amount of national outlets, uh, national Canadian outlets that cover the team. And uh, yeah, know, the other yeah, end of it is that. just like, you know, they had, they had a full ESPN day this year. And, you know, they, they're, they're the one seed. Like, they've gotten plenty of attention. I think that there's definitely, like, a level of skepticism that this team has got to wait there for a while and, you know, talk about where Kawhi Leonard's going to go. But when you consider the voltage of the stardom, it's probably in line with uh, 
with what would happen in the States, like, you know, Denver was a two seed. It's not like they got all the coverage in the world. It's just sometimes it's a situation where you just have guys like the guys that the Raptors have who, you know, don't really seem to indulge too much in this stuff. So if, if you're not really inviting it, then, you know, who's going to fly out and, and come to talk to a guy who doesn't really want to be talked to, right? So I think part of it is that as well. And uh, it's the fact that, yeah, it's, you know, it's a top five market, but, you know, maybe it is comparable to, to like Denver or maybe a more populous version. You know, it's not like, it's not like the Portland Trailblazers were, were uh, that well covered this year. I mean, they were well covered, but I think, I think you know what I'm saying. Like, it just... I think the Raptors get covered in line with how they should be covered, basically. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. I should be like Masai here and be like, believe in yourself, believe in your city. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We like to carry over the stories that we tell tell ourselves, even when it might not be true anymore. Like you said, right now this team is kind of figuring out what it's gonna. Like, what, what does this team look like now that it's actually one of the bigger players? We don't yeah. really know. Like I think the fan base doesn't really know how to how to act. A, when it's not being the underdog, which is actually not really something they have to deal with quite yet because the Warriors are obviously heavy favorites, but let's say Kawhi stays next year or maybe if they win the championship and, and he stays like that. It'd be kind of interesting to see what, what the identity of the fan base becomes. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see the, how the fan base re- reacts to being an overdog as opposed to an underdog, which is what they would be as the defending champs. All right, I want to finish mm-hmm. up with a quick analysis of this series, although, you know, you are going to be writing many, many thousands of words on this very topic. I think um, there's a, there's an expectation, and rightly so, that the Warriors are favorites and probably significantly heavy favorites. There is a part of me, though, from, like you, I've watched, I haven't covered as many games in person as you have, but I've watched every game this season. And I do think that, at least when it comes to the national NBA media, I, I think there's still a little bit of a, of a, um, how do I sort of phrase this? Uh, there's there's still a perception of the Raptors prior, to what the Raptors were prior to the Gasol deal, prior to this mm-hmm. great playoff run, and I think they I think they match up pretty good with the Warriors, especially if Durant doesn't play. If Durant plays, obviously everything changes. He's basically an impossible guard. And so while I think, you know, the head says to pick the Warriors in six or seven, I think this is going to be a really tight series. And if Toronto can win the first two games at home, I think it becomes a fascinating series because then Steve Kerr's got a lot of questions. So I'm just going to ask you an overview, and that is, um, how, do you think, how do you think the Raptors match up against an opponent that is essentially the de facto pick by most people in basketball to win this title? Well, I think the big thing that favors the Raptors and being able to make this a series is just the sheer amount of defensive bodies that they have, especially if Durant doesn't play and you can concentrate all of that energy onto Steph and Clay, and then scramble from there. And then the battle kind of becomes, can you scramble faster than the Warriors can pass? And that's really the interesting X's and O's aspect to me because as we know, that really hasn't been the case for a lot of teams, but, you know, watching this box series, the way that they defended and closed out on a five-out system that forced doubles on one of the most dominant players this, this, uh, this year in Giannis, 
it's uh, it might have been kind of the perfect practice to go out and try to do that against probably the best team against the scramble in the Warriors ever. So that's going to be fascinating just to see if, if that's the direction the series ends up taking. Then I just I'm just excited to see who kind of wins that battle. So I think that will dictate a good deal of, of how things go. And then, you know, more on the defensive side, Kyle and Fred, I think, got pretty good practice against a guy like J.J. Reddick, just chasing him and chasing him. And he got free way more than he should. And they made a lot of mistakes in that series against the 76ers that I think they can kind of look back at now. Because the one thing that really worries me is that while they've made it back multiple times now, like they, they lost game one against the Magic, which, you know, that probably doesn't rank that much, but being down 2-1 against the Sixers and then being down 2-0 against the Bucks, that obviously shows their resiliency, but you have to punch the first against the Warriors. You just yeah, do. You can't wait until they beat you and then all of a sudden now you care. And I think that they probably will just because I think they understand the Warriors are a completely different challenge. And they probably, maybe they do feel like underdogs. Maybe they will come into the series with that feeling of having your back against the wall. They seem to need throughout this playoffs in order to, to play the way they're supposed to. But they just may just have to have that. You can't, you can't start off the chess match at a disadvantage against this team. Like you just can't afford to do that. So that will be really big, I think, as well. How do you think the way the Warriors play, uh, ball movement, obviously going small with certain lineups, you know, especially that death lineup sometimes, um, how does that impact what the Raptors do? Because they do have, you know, Gasol was a really, really good weapon against defensively against Embiid mm-hmm. in the Philly series. The Milwaukee series, obviously Kawhi played Giannis, but Gasol was effective against... Brooke Lopez and I and and certainly effective when his shot was on from having a you know seven footer hitting three pointers. But the Warriors are really tricky because they don't really have a traditional center at all. And I wonder if that mm-hmm. changes the Raptors' equation. And does Gasol maybe not? Is Gasol much less of a factor in this series? And then you have to hope that Ibaka um, can really rise to the occasion, which he certainly has during the playoffs. But how do you, what do you expect from the matchup in? And everybody's going to be focusing on the wings, naturally so. There's, you know, and the backcourt where, you know, you have these all-time players. But I'm really fascinated by what's going to happen with the Raptors, given how important Gasol has been defensively. And then, obviously, what we all know on offense, he helped spread the floor and has made them a much more efficient offensive team. Yeah. One thing I need to do still, uh, you know, hopefully I'll end up doing today is actually go back and look at how Gasol performed in the playoffs against the Warriors when it when they did spread out, and I think that was probably pretty instructive. Gasol himself is a guy who, you know, is surprisingly really good at navigating those situations, hmm. and I think maybe part of the Raptors' struggle it has been the fact that it has tended to take him a day, like one game, to kind of figure out where exactly he wants to position himself. And those are sort of the adjustments that he seems to make. Maybe the fact that he's played the Warriors before, he won't really need that extra game. That's something you can hope for if you're a Raptors fan. Um, But one of the things that I'm hoping that we see is a little bit of Siakam at the five. 
see how he fares against Draymond. He's been compared to him. I think they're very different, similar players in a way. I mean, obviously, their build and the way that they score is completely different. It's kind of like speed versus, uh, I don't know, uh, I guess girth. But uh, it, it's, they kind of they. <laughs> that's that's the way they'll put it. Um, but at, at, at the same time, like they're very intuitive players. They're they're good at running downhill. They both seem like they're out of control up until the point that they kind of make the perfect pass, and that's something that Siakam is still working towards. Well, Draymond, as we know, has mastered that and has um, just always had that in his arsenal. He's just one of the smartest players that I've ever I've ever seen play. So that's. That, I think, could be fun. I think the Raptors will probably have to go to it a little bit. We haven't seen it a lot, but I do think that, you know, when you do go to the death lineup, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, you want to be able to, to match its, uh, its speed because the last thing you want to start doing is starting to post up a guy like Draymond. That's just a mistake, and, and I don't know why teams somehow still do it. It's just it's, it's like how we laugh about, uh, about Kyle Lowry being posted up when he is uh, he is mismatched against a bigger guy as well. It just doesn't really end well. That's That, I think, is a trap that you don't necessarily want to fall into. So hopefully a little bit of Siakam, hopefully some uh, some surge as well, although you just, it's a little bit tougher with him because you just never really know which version of Sergi Baca is going to show up. But uh, you know, in the playoffs, for the most part, he's been pretty reliable this season. Yeah. By the way, Kyle Lowry is such an underrated defender in terms of the stuff that doesn't go on the box score from his ability to take charges to uh, he just uses his body. And I think I forgot who had the famous quote. Was it DeMar DeRozan who said like one of the best asses in basketball? He just knows how to use yeah. his uh, <laughs> he knows he knows how to use his booty in terms of positioning against bigger players. He's really, really a good defensive player who you don't often uh, focus on. I'm with you on Draymond. I mean, Draymond is such a great help defender. Um, you're you're probably smarter to go, to go elsewhere. Uh, I am fat. I I am my la- here. We'll do one last thing on, in terms of, uh, in terms of analysis, and then I just want to ask you one last one about Kawhi, and then I'll let you go. Do you, um? I think you have to believe, be, because like th- there has to be some kind of regression to average, regression to the mean that Danny Green is not going to go another series of cold shooting, and I really appreciate. And I think it's was very smart of Nick Nurse not to totally bail on him, even though Van Vliet and Powell were performing better offensively. And this just strikes me, Stuart, that Danny Green's going to have some uh, space for open looks. And I have to think eventually the career averages catch up and he starts burying them. But it has been a while. Yeah. Yeah, I think Danny Green hosted the Inside the Green Room podcast on Yahoo. Canada, which you guys nice, good, uh, good, good plug. Uh, well thank you. Uh, he, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's gonna be fine. I think at a certain point, when a shooter is uh, is in a slump, like they eventually find their way out of it. Obviously, this one has come at an unfortunate time for Danny, but it's not like this is the first time he's ever missed like missed games. I mean, uh, missed missed shots for like six games in a row. You know, which is with the amount of spotlight that you get on it. He was actually just joking uh, after one of the games, I can't remember, where he kept getting these texts where he was saying, hey, like, you got, don't think about it too much. Don't think about it too much. He was like, well, I'm trying, but you keep texting me about it. So, you know, it's like, that's, it's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the funnier things uh, that and a more unfortunate for him that I guess happens in the playoffs where when everybody's uh, watching you, all that stuff kind of gets micro-targeted. And, 
and every little every little tendency and the missed shot becomes analyzed way more than than it usually is. So I think that's part of it. And you know, Danny's Danny's been the finals. He's hit incredibly important final shots. He's great when the lights come on. He's just missing some shots, and I'm sure that you know just the fact that you have now four days before the final start to kind of recharge yourself. I wouldn't be surprised if it turns into one of those things where the first shot he gets in game one, it goes in and all of a sudden, you know, he starts hitting a bunch. And I think personally, it's not like you can plan for these things, but it's, it's not to keep him in the barrel force for this matchup, right? <laughs> the, uh, all right. Last one for me is do you, and you know, you've been in the locker room all year. So, you know, not that anybody knows Kawhi Leonard, but at least you've you've been around the team, you've talked to guys, so you'll have as good a guess or sense as as anyone else. Do you put any kind of um, value on the result of this series in relation to what Kawhi's decision is going to be? Meaning that if they win, does it tip the scales one way or another? If they lose, does it tip the scales one way or another? And in we're all guessing with Kawhi, I get that, but how would you view this series in relation to his decision? Well, I think that there was a lot that was probably predetermined in terms of does he like it in Toronto? Does he like his teammates, his coaching staff? Does he trust the medical staff? How does he vibe with the front office? Does he like the city? Things like that have already been decided, right? Like, I don't think that will be shifted too much based on uh, on how this series goes. But at the same time, it's impossible for this not to be a factor, right? I mean, the decision is going to be made so quickly after the finals are over. And, you know, I'm sure two weeks is enough time for, for him, more than almost anybody else in the world, to, to get his emotions grounded if it does go to – to, to seven, which is, is kind of like the amount of time that, that he'd have after. But at the same time, it's just such a big life event to be in the NBA Finals that there's just no way that what happens and it won't impact your future decision-making. Like, at the end of the day, we're all people here, right? Like, you just, you know, you have memories, you have emotions. Maybe you have negative ones, maybe you have positive ones, right? Like, I, I don't even think that it would be like, oh, if they win, it increases his percentage of staying by this much. I think... On the other side, maybe if you lose and you come that close, you feel like, hey, I have unfinished business and this Warriors team isn't going to exist next year or, you know, maybe we'll come back and be one year stronger. Maybe if you win, you feel like you can leave without uh, without making anybody too mad as well. So I think that it can go in so many different directions. But I do think the series inevitably, no matter what happens, has to impact the way he's thinking. It's just like he, he's a person at the end of the day, you know? I'm with you. Uh, I just wish, uh, you know, I kind of love the fact that we don't know. I love the fact that he's sort of drama-free yeah. and that we don't have any, um, that we don't really have a great feel. At the same time, selfishly, I, I want him to stay because it, it, cha- it certainly would be immensely better for my professional life, yours as well, and I think him staying would change generationally basketball, at least NBA fandom in Canada. Uh, I think I don't think that's an overstatement. It just it would make this team a real factor for the next couple of years. You'd have arguably the best player in the league in the country. It just it would change um, so many things. And I think they've given themselves a shot, which is pretty incredible from where they were when the deal was announced. Uh, Sirit Sohi is a national NBA writer.
for Yahoo Sports. Uh, she will be covering the NBA Finals between the Raptors and the Warriors. Sir, we'll definitely be reading your stuff, or I'll be reading your stuff, I should say, but there'll be many others who will do that as well. And um, win or lose, uh, you'll definitely be back on this podcast uh, for sure. Thanks again for joining us uh, on the Sports Media Podcast and have a great finals. It's uh, it's going to be amazing for this to be in Toronto. Thanks, Richard. You too. All right. Most people, uh, certainly in the States, know Daniel Dale as the Washington Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. But for this podcast purposes, he has become uh, the person we go to when great things happen to the Toronto Raptors, and great things have happened. There is Drake, of course, that everybody knows about. There's some other Canadian celebrities. But I put Daniel Dale on the list of celebrities following (laughs) and rooting for the Toronto Star. Daniel, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me back. All right, so, you know, we talked, I don't remember when we talked. I think it was either right before the Orlando series or during the middle of the Orlando series. I should know this. But I think the it was world, the Philly series, yeah. Oh, Philly series, okay. So, Daniel, as you know, the world has changed, I mean, since we talked. The Toronto Raptors are in the finals, which for you as a kid who, you know, started websites about them and you go back to essentially the beginning, I mean, this how surreal is this for you? This must be ridiculous. It, it's so surreal. Every, every, little, every little new development related to them being in the finals, like their finals, media availabilities or like all the content that all these non-Toronto outlets are churning out. It's just like newly amazing to me. It's just, it's just crazy that, you know, even though I believe in this team to see it actually happen to be, to see Toronto be the, the final focus is, is so bizarre. Where were you for game six of the Milwaukee I was actually, Yeah. So I was actually in Kentucky where my, my girlfriend is from. So we were with her family and her, um, her parents have been watching the Raptors for a few weeks now, which is, which is really adorable. Um, but we're all, we're all watching together and, uh, jumping up and down. Uh, it was, it was amazing. So you watch the, you watch game six, the clincher as a longtime Torontonian in Kentucky, not probably the place you ever dreamed you'd be watching the Raptors get to, get to dreamland. No, no, I would, I mean, it would have been so cool to be in Toronto. My parents were at the game. I would have loved to be there, but, uh, couldn't do it, but it was, it was still fun. One of the things that when uh, when you uh, agreed to come on, which I really appreciate that I wanted to ask you is, you know, you cover, obviously, you have covered news for a long time um, from the Ford administration, the first Ford administration in Toronto. Now, obviously, I think people know you for your work covering the Trump White House. Given your fandom for the Raptors and given that you are a news person, is there a party that wants to write about this? Like, because I would think that even though you're not a sports writer by trade, it there has to be a part of you, right, that just that would like to express what you feel about this team? You know, honestly, I'm I'm loving just, just doing this thing where I like occasionally just tweet really enthusiastic fan tweets and then just mm-hmm. leave the leave the writing to the professional sports guys. Like it's just fun. I think it, it's increasingly fun for me, you know, covering Trump and dealing with all this 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 crazy stressful stuff on a daily basis like to just be an enthusiastic fan who doesn't have to worry about being objective or impartial you know to just jump up and down and yell and tweet like woo you know uh so i don't i don't really want to write about it like i've been pretty uh i've been having fun engaging with uh some of the guys at the athletic and and other the the other uh, people who cover the raptors but that that's enough for me 
That's interesting. I, that's that's an interesting answer. I wouldn't have expected that, but that's pretty cool. Is there anyone in your Washington circles who is a Raptors fan, or maybe just somebody in Washington that would surprise people listening who happen to be a fan of the Raptors? Um, I don't know about surprising people. I mean, there are other foreign correspondents here who are who are big fans. Um, Richard Madden of CTV. We've we've gone to a game here. Um, Matt Kwong at, at CBC. I know a bunch of them have been going to. Uh, going to some bars to, to watch the games together. I've either been at the games in Toronto or like, I don't know. I just kind of like watching in a quiet place where you don't have to, you know, fight for, you know, fight to hear the play by play and have people jabbering at you. Cause it's like, I really, you know, I want to, I want to see every moment. I don't want to be like socializing during, <laughs> during the playoffs. <laughs> we're now were you for game seven, uh, Kawhi shot against Philly over Embiid. Were you at Scotiabank arena? No, so I was I was at uh, game one, two, and five of that series, and oh. then I had to go back to DC, and then uh, I was in Sedona, Arizona, for uh, for a wedding there, and uh, it, it was hilarious because my girlfriend, even though she's I, I've converted her this year, but she already gets so stressed out during these playoff games that she'll like shower during the game. She'll take like a, a shower in the third <laughs> quarter, and during this game, she was she was so tense that she kept going out to the balcony and staring at these beautiful red rocks they have in Sedona, Arizona, um, just like trying to get some in-game therapy. But, um, I, yeah, I convinced her to watch the last possession, and we were just like absolute lunatics, like running around, screaming, jumping. It was it was crazy. Yeah, it was the, the, the friendliest rim we have seen in a while. Did you go to any – were you on site for any of the Milwaukee games? Yeah. I, um, was that any of the Milwaukee games? Um, n- actually, no, I wasn't. So I'm going to come in for uh, – for game one and two of the finals, but no, I missed the uh, the Bucks here. Okay, so you'll be you're good. You'll be in. You'll be at Scotia Banks for games one and two. You were able to procure tickets for that. Yeah, uh, yeah, for for a whole lot of money, like the rest of us. But yeah. <laughs> All right, so now let's get to again. I will will you know I will certainly be talking to professional sports writers as they say about this series, but I do want to get a little bit of a conversation with you about breaking down the Warriors series. The conventional wisdom, I think, by most people who follow basketball, and understandably so, that the Warriors are the favorites in this series, probably significant favorites. And at least the people I trust, there's a lot of Warriors in six, Warriors in five, maybe a couple Warriors in seven. On a top-down level, how do you think the Raptors match up with Golden State? I, I think they're, they're as well-equipped to deal with the Warriors as anyone. Um, you know, the, the Rockets had their one sort of Durant stopper guy in, in P.J. Tucker. Um, and Chris Paul, at least, you know, earlier versions of Chris Paul, like especially before the season, um, was relatively well-equipped to play Steph. But I think the Raptors overall, um, when you look at uh, Durant and Thompson, especially the Raptors defense, you know, with Siakam and Kawhi uh, and Danny Green uh, and, and hopefully eventually Ananobi, you know, there's a lot of bodies to, to throw at these guys um, and just a lot of general defensive intelligence. Um, my, my concern, well, I have lots of concerns, but a big concern, you know, watching the Warriors in previous series is that when they decide to turn up the defense, it, it can be hard for teams to get off a shot. Like, it's just a major struggle. And we've seen the Raptors' offense really get bogged down by, I think, teams that aren't, aren't nearly as good at, at peak level. And so, you know, playing the Warriors at finals level, how does 
the Raptors offense deal with it. You know, if, if Iguodala does a, a real good job in Kawhi or if they double Kawhi, you know, do, do they have enough other guys making shots at a given time to score enough points to, to stay with the Warriors? Um, yeah, there's lots of, lots of concerns, but that's my biggest one. All right, so we presume that Kawhi Leonard will guard Kevin Durant if Kevin Durant is healthy and maybe he's back for game two or three or four. We'll see. Let's start with game one, though, Daniel. Who, If you're Nick Nurse, who do you put Kawhi Leonard on and why? Well, I mean, there's two ways to go about it. I, I think they might start him on Iguodala. If Iguodala starts, um, he, he, he's a decent shooter, as we know, especially in the playoffs. Um, but that's the kind of option where you can have Kawhi sort of roaming around for steals, trapping, just being a nuisance. Um, so I might, I might start there and see how, you know, Kyle does on Steph and see how Danny Green does on Thompson. Um, but then I, I think we can see him anywhere, especially with Durant out. Like if Steph is just cooking them, you know, you can try Kawhi on Steph. Uh, Thompson gets hot. You can put Kawhi on Thompson. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that, uh, he's not going to be, I mean, he's not going to be fixed on one guy the, the whole time. One of the things, obviously, that changed the Milwaukee series was Norm Powell and Fred Van Vliet. They were unbelievable when they came in, and obviously Van Vliet's shooting percentage from three-point, you know, under a, um, you know, you sort of can statistically do it. It's like, it's sort of essentially like the greatest, like, you know, three-game stretch of three-point shooting that we've seen in the playoffs yeah. for a long time. Do you expect those guys to continue to be hot against the Warriors, or could we see someone else, you think, from the Raptors emerge just given the matchups, and maybe this is the series where Danny Danny Green refines his stroke? Yeah, I, I have eternal confidence in Danny. I mean, he's such a he's such a great shooter, such a proven playoff performer. I have no idea what's going on with him, and he's missing by so much, like, it's not like, oh, he's getting some bad luck and, it's, it's, you know, these, these shots are going in and out. Like, he's way, way off. Um, but I don't know. I, I think Danny, I like to think Danny will get it together. I, I don't think you can count on Fred Van shooting, like, what was he, like 14 for 17 over that three-game? <laughs> yes. Something, yeah. something yeah. absolutely crazy like that. So that's not, you know, if he went eight for 17, that would be, that would be good. Um, so, you know, I think he'll come back down to earth. And Powell, it's just so strange. I mean, he has these years where he – you know, you're kind of like, bang, you're heading into the wall. What are you doing, Norm? Um, he'll have the occasional good game, but he just has the ability to, to really step up. Um, so, I, yeah, I hope, I hope it continues. It seems like Norm, you know, likes playing the Bucks better than he likes playing almost anyone in the league. Uh, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count on that level of performance, but, you know, they need, they need something from everybody because they're only playing like, you know, eight, eight guys a game. People are going to be listening to this after Game One. For, uh, they'll probably, you know, some some people will actually get this podcast after Game One is over, so you'll know the result. But in talking to people up here in Toronto, Daniel, I, I, there's a thought, and, I, and there, this makes a lot of sort of sense to me of the 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 for the Raptors to really have a legit chance in this series, they almost have, they certainly have to win one of two games. But you can make the argument they really have to hold home court because of just how hard Oracle is to win at. And the other thing, if you could go up 2-0, then you really force Steve Kerr and the Warriors into an interesting situation in terms of what are you going to do with Durant? What are you going to do with Cousins? So how do you look at the first two games of the series and how important would it be to get two as opposed to split? Obviously, if they go down 0-2, they're in serious trouble. 
Yeah, I, I really feel like they have to get they have to get both. I think th- this team has shown that it's really resilient. Um, if they were to win the first and, and lose the second, you know, they would still have a shot. But I think it's only at two zero where I'd feel like, okay, like this is a really good chance to win the championship. And the other thing is that you know we know Durant is out for game one. He might well be out for game two. I think they have to get the games without Durant. Um, and it, it, it's kind of weird thinking like, oh, this team is like hobbled now. You know, that, that it's like the same core that won 73 games without Durant. Exactly. Um, but it still feels like, you know, this is, this is the moment. Um, and again, it kind of felt like the Warriors are, were playing with the Blazers. You know, they would, they would give up these big leads and then just come, come back literally every game. But the Blazers did take big leads, like 15-plus point leads against the, this group without Durant. Um, and I think the Raptors are, are significantly better than the Blazers on both ends. And so I, I think there really is, there really is an opening. Um, I, to me, it kind of feels like you know, last year against Cleveland, game one they were up, and then they they famously blew it. You know, there was like a lid on the basket; they couldn't score, and you just knew like that was the moment. You know, that if they were going to have a chance, they got to get that game. So I, I feel that way about definitely game one and probably game two as well. I think the U.S. media is coming around a little bit, but for those of us who live here and have seen this team, I I, th- I think I think. Those who have not watched every game of the Raptors, I think they don't realize how resilient and how good they are. They they are better than Portland. They're they're deeper. They're better. They're better top end. Kawhi is better than Damon Lillard, and you know you can make the argument Siakam, obviously McCallum are different players, different positions, but they're equal there. So I do think they're not to say they're being overlooked, but I think people and tell me if you agree with this. I think sort of the basketball world or basketball Twitter, and I understand this, they have this perception of the Raptors from years past because LeBron basically destroyed them year after year after year. They did not come through in the biggest moments. Their star player, star players in DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, while good, were always a step behind the best players in the league. And they didn't have the same supporting cast they have now. So again, I don't know if they're going to beat the Warriors and the Warriors will be the favorites. But I do think, Daniel, there still is a little bit of, of this perception of the rap of, of the Raptors, which is not the reality. The reality is they are a different team built to win this year with a lot of veterans who have pretty deep playoff experience. Yeah, I agree. Some of the takes are really dumb, and I still think there's this perception of Lowry as a as a bad playoff performer. You know, based on like a couple a couple series that are now a few years ago. He's he's right. been he's been fantastic this year. He's been he's been good in the playoffs for a while, um, and I don't know. Like I understand why why people would say you know it's going to be a short series. The Warriors are going to kill them because the Warriors are amazing. Like it could be, I mean they, the Warriors could sweep them. The Warriors are absolutely incredible, and I don't think you know that wouldn't be a shock and it wouldn't be a shame for the Raptors to get to get swept by this team. But I I do think that uh, it's going to be a longer series than that. They are a, a really good. You know, Brazilian tough team. They do have, and they do have, they do have the tools to to win a couple games, especially without, uh, especially without Durant in there. So yeah, I, th- I think some of those people might, might be surprised. Uh, all right, so Daniel, here's my last one for your sort of my last uh, conversation starters. The you know, I think uh, Raptors fans, understandably so, they're so hyper focused on this series and so excited that you don't want to think about the future after the finals, whether win or lose regarding Kawhi Leonard. But that story is going to come up very quickly. Do you think, do you think the result of this series 
will have any impact on his thinking because you can obviously make the argument many ways. If they fall short, well, great argument to come back. Let's run it back again and try to win it this group. Uh, I want to win it with this group. If they win it, you could look around and say, well, Gasol and Lowry are a little old. Um, I've done what I could for this franchise, and I can now go to California with with two rings and live there. You know what I mean? There's like I could do it like a million of these different scenarios to try to sort of do the guessing game. But from your perspective, do you think the result of the NBA Finals has any kind of impact on what Kawhi's thinking? I, I really have no idea. I think we're all we're all guessing. We have no. I mean, he he's given no real indication. We've all been reading into every statement from him <laughs> right. and people around him, you know, every smile, uh, every, every laugh, you know, every interaction with, with Lowry. Um, what, what I'm happy about is just that they, you know, they've gotten far enough that we don't have to have what if uh, related to their performance. Like if he leaves, you know, it's not going to be like, oh man, if only they won game two against Philly and they won that series, you know, then he'd be convinced they're a better team. I think they've gotten far enough that if he leaves, it's just because he he always wanted to leave. Like they've done everything right. They've they've gone you know as far as kind of everyone thought they would need to to convince him that 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 they were worth staying with. And so if he goes at this point, I think you just wish him well and say, well, you know, he he had no obligation to stay. He he did everything he could, and he's doing he's you know exercising his rights. So I think Raptors fans at this point will be will be sad, but but fine with it. Daniel, I think this is one of the only fan bases, honestly, that would give a guy who left in that circumstance a standing ovation if he came back. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's it's amazing absolutely. to think. Like I know I know how San Antonio feels about Kawhi, but if Kawhi does leave the first time, let's say the Clippers come back, that guy's getting a massive standing ovation. Oh yeah, he's going to be beloved. He's going to be beloved here. I mean, he, he it's it's funny. I mean, he he's done his job, but he's been. Like he's he's been such a lovable guy, you know. Like you know, he, people laugh at that fun guy thing, but he's been so much fun to watch. He's been you know respectful, professional, the media, to the fans. You know, he said all the right things about Toronto, and and fundamentally, we know like he doesn't have an obligation to stay. So yeah, I think he would get an ovation if he left. Yeah, I mean, again, if if you had to ask me today, I, I would still say it's sort of fifty-one forty-nine for the Clippers. But the fact is, and by the way, I I don't see any chance of Kawhi Leonard going to the Lakers with their dysfunction or the New York Knicks with their dysfunction. It just doesn't fit into anything yeah, agree. He's, he's, he's sort of about. But the thing that's fascinating, to, not fascinating is not the right word, the thing that I'm so impressed by the Raptors is to get it to even 49, to get it to like a coin flip means that they did their job in the most spectacular way. They, Their medical staff has Kawhi's trust. They... Clearly, management provided him with what he needed this year to try to win, like the Gasol trade, essentially win-now moves. And so the idea that arguably the best player in the league, or if not the best player, certainly one of the two or three best players in the league, would even be this close to considering Toronto means that Masai Ujiri and his group did an incredible job. I don't know if in the end they could pull it off, but the fact that they're this close, I think just tells you how amazing a job they did. Yeah, com- completely agree. They've been they've been fantastic, um, and it, I think it's it's also forced us. You know, the the fact that he might go has forced us to to extra savor this run. I mean, we we always yep. would. It's been it's been amazing. But we know 
you know, how precarious it is. It's like, you know, when like a loved one, you know, you know, they have, they have a short time left on this earth. You're like every moment, you know, let's just, <laughs> let's just really enjoy this. Um, you know, it's not, not that dire for Kawhi, but I think it just forced us to like really cherish, you know, every win, every, every dramatic shot. Yeah. It's, I think it's made it, the, the, the precariousness has made it extra awesome. All right, Daniel, last one. It gets to game seven, which I actually think is very possible. Yeah. It's in, Tor- it's in Toronto. Will you will you find a way to be at Scotiabank Arena, or do you want to watch that somewhere quietly with your girlfriend? And you you do all the superstitious things you have to do to try to get the win. No, I'd, I'd want to be there. It just depends on how how much that would cost. Like I'm <laughs> I'm I'm willing to spend a lot of money on these tickets, like more more than I should. And I spent you know maybe more than I should for uh, for game one and game two, but it, it's going to be absolutely insane if they get there. So if I can do it, I'll do it, and if not, then I'll. I'll watch it in some quiet place. There's, I mean, do are you? Do, are there, do you have any t- Toronto billionaire friends that may be going that might want to <laughs> take an extra extra guy along? That might be the. That's going to be an expensive ticket, Daniel. If they get to Game Seven, no matter where you you are sitting in Scotiabank, I think. Yeah, I've I've no benevolent billionaire friends, unfortunately. So I have to figure it out myself. <laughs> Still, though, once in a lifetime thing, I respect it. All right, Daniel, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction. I don't want to change the karma here, but uh, you know. You, you are from Toronto. I now live in Toronto. It has been an incredible, incredible eight-week stretch. It, the whole city is fired up about this team, and the fan base really reflects Toronto and its multiculturalism. It's just been so much fun to watch, and I think it has lasting ties. I know you were somebody who, um, you know, you probably felt like an outcast at a certain point, how much you loved basketball like 20 years ago, but this next generation coming up, the kids who are 10 and 12, they're gonna remember this run, I think, and be basketball fans. It's uh, it's a big moment for the city and the country, I think, when it comes to basketball. Yeah, for sure. For for me, I was a fan from the start. But what made me really, you know, crazy devoted was the Vince Carter era, and I still remember some of those moments, some of those dunks, you know, buzzer beaters. And it's it's been so cool to me to to see anecdotes online, you know, Facebook, Twitter, of people's moms or grandparents. Um, or, or young kids getting into this run. Um, Sean Fitzgerald of The Athletic posted that his, uh, I think his eight-year-old son, you know, always runs downstairs to play sports, but, but this time he was, instead of playing hockey, he was reenacting Kawhi's shot and narrating it like a play-by-play guy. Um, uh, a Raptors writer named Sean Woodley told this really touching story of his parents uh, who deal with health, health issues don't like leaving their house very much, went to a bar downtown to watch game six. They were so excited. So stories like that, yeah, I think these are these are the moments that make fan bases bigger and, and really increase people's loyalty. It's, it's been fantastic for someone like me to, to watch. All right, Daniel Dale is the uh, Washington bureau chief of the Toronto Star. You can see him on CNN as well as a uh, uh, correspondent, pundit there. Um, Daniel, listen, I wanted to give you 23 minutes of not having to think about Donald Trump's falsehoods. <laughs> so I feel you, like I have I feel like I have done my job and given you some basketball talk. You've done great. Thank you very much. All right, Daniel Dale. And Daniel, if the uh, Raptors end up winning the finals, you are coming back on. We're going to have to talk about this for another okay. 20 minutes just because this will be one of the greatest moments of your life, and I will need yeah. to capture it on my niche podcast. All right, Daniel okay. Dale, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to David Epstein, Sirit Sohi, and Daniel Dale. Three different conversations 
obviously a lot of Raptors talk, but, uh, you know, bear with me on this one. It's very exciting to be in the city, and I wanted to do something on that. And, of course, the podcast is free, so I'm not charging you to listen to the Raptors talk. And it will be over soon enough. Uh, but my thanks to all of those guys, and certainly check out Epstein's book. Uh, I have no doubt it will be a bestseller, and he's a really, really bright guy and has written an excellent book. If you like these kind of podcasts, although this is certainly a little bit of a different one, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast page on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio.com. Check out our previous guests from Media Roundtables, Taylor Rooks and Jim Ross. Uh, We had a Will People Watch the XFL. Before that, Daniel, uh, actually Daniel Dale was back, but Tim Layden, Bruce Feldman and Daniel Dale, Adnan Burke and Mike Lombardi, Jamel Hill and Rick Riley, Renee Young, Paul Heyman, and just go down the list. The producer of this podcast has been Chris Flannery. I really appreciate his work. My thanks to Cadence 13. As always, check out their many, many podcasts. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.